Welcome to Abolition Liberation Solidarity, a Here for the Kids production. We are an abolition movement dedicated to fighting the systems of oppression that stem from white supremacy, including gun violence, climate catastrophe, houselessness, and oppressions of all kinds. I'm Syra Rao, your host and co-founder of Here for the Kids. For many Americans, fighting for Palestinian liberation is a new cause, a reaction to October 7th, and watching a genocide unfold on social media for over three months. But for today's guest, fighting for a free Palestine has been her work for more than a half century. Esther Farmer identifies as a Palestinian Jew. She was born in New York and raised in a progressive Jewish household. Her parents were fervently anti-Zionist and were active politically, causing the FBI to visit her house several times as a child and leading her father to be brought before the House Un-American Committee to testify. Esther is on the leadership team of the New York branch of Jewish Voice for Peace which has been one of the main groups leading the peaceful protests against the Israeli genocide of Palestinians. She was part of the demonstration recently, where Jewish elder women chained themselves to the White House fence to demand action from President Biden. She is also the editor of the wonderful book, A Land with the People, Palestinians and Jews Confront Zionism, which is a collection of essays, poetry, and art. And Esther also wrote and directed the theater project, Wrestling with Zionism. She is busy. It is my pleasure to welcome Esther Farmer to Abolition Liberation Solidarity. Welcome, Esther. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Of course. Of course. All right, Esther, let's get into it. For many people, the Israel-Palestinian relationship is fractured along religious lines. You identify as a Palestinian Jew. Can you help us understand what that means? Yes. Thank you for that question. This is not a fundamentally religious issue. Palestine was a country and it contained many different religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and others as well. And it had always been, it always had that diverse character to it. Uh, when my parents came over here way before the Nakba, way before 1948, the country was 80% Muslim, 10% Christian, and 10% Jewish. So everyone in that country was Palestinian, whether they were Jews or Christians or, or Muslim. And for the most part, people got along very well. In fact, my grandmother used to always say, we got along fine in Palestine until the British got involved. And what she was referring to was the Balfour Declaration that declared that this was now, uh, it paved the way for it to become a Jewish state. And of course, it wasn't like Britain was uh, loved Jews so much. They actually wanted to get rid of their Jews. So they cooperated with the Zionists to make that happen. And that's why they supported the so-called Jewish state. Could you explain that, how the British basically made Israel happen and why? I mean, the Balfour Declaration was in the 20s, 1920, I believe. I mean, I literally, you know, the, the Brits were very anti-Semitic. So again, you know, uh, the whole Holocaust, the whole history of anti-Semitism really did not come from the Muslim countries. As I said, people got along rather well and Jews did very well under the Ottoman Empire, which was uh, Turkey pretty much, when they controlled that area. So, you know, the Brits felt, okay, we have a Jewish problem too, so we will assist the Zionists. The Zionists was a movement in the maybe very, very late 19th century. They said, fine, uh, let's make this a Jewish state without any consideration for the fact that there were people living there and they were not Jews. <laughs> so 
hence the title of our book, which is A Land with a People, because the trope at that time to make Israel happen was uh, that area of Palestine was a land without a people for a people without a land. And interestingly enough, it was not a Jew who said that. It was a Christian nationalist mm. who made that statement. So, but well, there were Christians, people there. <laughs> yeah, Christian Zionism is alive and well and, and very dangerous. Very dangerous. So I'm just curious, how your parents, first of all, how did they end up in the U.S., if you could tell us that? Well, apparently the family story is that my grandfather was a draft dodger. He was a very progressive Jew, didn't believe in war. And he was drafted in the Turkish army and he didn't want to serve in the army. And that's the reason why they came to New York. The other funny family story was that my grandfather was considered a Talmudic scholar and uh, was trying to prove that socialism was ordained in the Talmud. That's awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a long history there. But that's the reason why they came to the States. And it was probably in the 20s. Got it. And then what year were you born, Esther? I was born in 1951. Okay. And you touch on this um, in your essay in the book, which everybody needs to read, about activism and how you grew up in a really sort of activist, anti-Zionist household. Can you tell us about that? We were very Jewish and very anti-Zionist. Both my parents were, you know, it's, it's fascinating to look back at it now that history, I feel like I'm continuing to build my relationship with them after these many years. But, you know, my father used to say things that were so pressing and so predictive of what's happening. Like, for example, how can Jews be safe if they're kicking somebody out of their house? Jews will never be safe. And the Palestinians were made to suffer for the Holocaust when they had absolutely nothing to do with it. So these and your were dad all things that. that your I dad grew said up that. With. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. So I grew up with that, but I also grew up with a very kind of uh, culturally rich Jewish tradition. And for some strange reason, my parents, well, my father spoke Yiddish, which is a little bit of a mystery because that was not really the language of what's called the Arab Jew, the Palestinian Jew. By the way, Israel loves to not use the term Palestinian. They'll say Arab Jew, but they will never say Palestinian because they want to erase the entire history, including the name. Palestine. So it wasn't the language, but they spoke Yiddish and some Arabic when they came here. And it was a very, very rich cultural mix of progressive Judaism. And, you know, Jews had that reputation. But one of the saddest things for me as an activist is to see the way that Zionism has moved Jews to the right as a community. That's been very painful because my history was always as Jewish leftist. So for me, Zionism has not only had this unbelievably horrific impact on Palestinians, but a terrible impact on Jews as well, just in terms of this tribalism that makes it mean everything. I have to, I'll tell you, my mother made up this great expression, we are Jews for justice, not just us. Mm, that's amazing. That's a very important philosophy that I grew up with. Well, you say something in your book where you, you just said, my grandmother used to always say that Jews had no problems with Muslims until the British got involved. She was not a Zionist when she came to New York, but later became more influenced by Zionism as she lived here. This also feels like what you just said about Zionism moving Jewish folks, right? Can you tease that out for us? Because I don't think people understand that. Why? Zionism is a philosophy that kind of says, only me, only us, and it kind of, it, it leaves out the rest of the world. 
this is like a very anti-Jewish thing to do. Um, the Jewish tradition of Tikkun Olam is repair the world. You're supposed to leave the world in better shape than you found it. So this is in direct contradiction to that. For me, Zionism is the most anti-Semitic thing in the world because of that, because it denies the very, very famous Jewish question, which is, we say every Passover, if you are only for yourself, then who are you? That's a question that is completely intrinsic to what it means to be Jewish. And the Zionists don't have that question. So they, they refuse to even allow that question. And so it becomes all about us, all about us. You know, my father used to say, of course, the title of my piece in that book is The Zionists Love Israel and They Hate Jews. So Israel and Judaism is not the same thing. But we were made at the 75 years of relentless propaganda. We were made to think that it is the same thing. And people in this country think it is the same thing. But it's ridiculous on the face of it because Judaism is 5,000 years old. Boom. That. So... This, to me, is sort of, in addition to the inhumanity of, of saying that you have to murder an entire people, you have to genocide people in order to be safe, and the lack of critical thinking skills involved with that, if Israel and Judaism are synonymous, then it means that Judaism came to be in 1948, and we know that's not true. <laughs> Why do you think, Esther, that that is being lost? How is it that Zionism came to really take a stronghold, and you mentioned propaganda. Can you tell us about the propaganda? Even your grandmother became Zionist. The propaganda is, is really relentless. And another thing my father used to say, that when Israel was created, it was kind of a deal with the devil, meaning that he didn't feel, he never felt that Israel was going to be good for the Jews. He felt like it was good for the United States' imperial interest. And from his perspective, the United States wanted Israel because they wanted a base in the Middle East. Now, it is also absolutely true that before 1948, before the Holocaust, most Jews were anti-Zionists. Uh -huh. And that's a history that the book tries to reclaim because it's been lost in this relentless propaganda. Most Jews were not interested in going to Israel. Many of them wanted to come to the United States, and the United States wouldn't let them. So the United States wanted Israel for its own imperial interest. So that was an important part of how Israel was created. And yes, now there are millions of people that are living there. And many of them went to Israel because of the Holocaust. And again, it was had nothing to do with the Palestinians and nothing to do with those Muslim countries. They weren't responsible for it, the Holocaust. So all of a sudden, this mass migration is coming into the country and taking over everything. And they had money because the United States was funding it. So this country was really responsible. In many ways, the United States is responsible for what's going on because we have supported Israel's, the whole occupation for 75 years. So this is the roosters, you know, what, what is that expression? The chickens coming home to oh, roost. Home to that's what's happening. So your father does sit down extremely prescient. Um, you, you said here he felt strongly that because of the Holocaust, Jews were vulnerable to being used by powerful players who wanted Israel for their own interests. My father right. always identified as a Palestinian Jew. That's the chickens coming home to roost. This is yes. America. This is Amer That's what's happening right now. And America is using Jewish people 
as a shield and a sword, and it's disgusting to to bear witness to. Right. It really is. You know, I mean, that's when you asked this question about Zionism moving um, the Jewish community to the right. I spoke at one of the women's rallies at one time, and all I said was I was a Palestinian Jew. I didn't say anything else. And there were a bunch of Israelis in the front screaming that I was some kind of a traitor. Just like all I did was say what my identity was. (laughs) It wasn't like I even said anything about Israel, Palestine. But that's the level to which people have been so inundated with that safety would only be possible unless we had to have Israel in order to be safe. And the opposite has happened. Israel has not made Jews safe. I'm a Jew. I'm concerned about safety also. And I know with my own eyes, I'm looking at what Israel is doing. And unless this stops, unless the apartheid wall comes down, unless people have equal rights, there will always be war. So that is the reality. And yes, I think that Zionism has had a huge role to play in propagandizing people and making people believe that we had to have Israel you know, there's a big strain of Judaism now that is around diasporism, which means that Jews have always been travelers. In fact, you know, another thing my father used to say was, Jews are nomads. You know, why do we need a state? This whole concept of a state is problematic. And I think this kind of extreme nationalism is not helpful to what we need to do in the world just as human beings. So in Israel, the propaganda arm of the Israeli government is called Hasbara, right? That's that's what it is. Yes. How has the propaganda been used? Who is who has been propagandizing Americans, Christians, and Jewish folks? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I think it goes pretty high up. You know, uh, there was this deal made about Israel. The United States was very committed. The government was very committed to making sure that Israel succeeded. Israel planted this whole thing, the Israel bonds. When I was a kid, everybody had to buy, if you were a Jew, you had to buy Israel bonds to support Israel. Wow. And there's there's $50 billion in Israel bonds that have been used literally to prop up the state, prop up the whole, just the apparatus and the apartheid, the, 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 the wall. All of this was built on Israel bonds. So there was just this direct relationship between the United States government and the Zionists in Israel. That's amazing. And, and you know, Esther, like back to the propaganda, the thing that has struck me. So I ran for Congress in 2018 and I ran and I was living in Denver, Colorado, which is considered one of the bluest districts in the country. Okay. So we know that this, you know, permeates all, all both parties. Right. I was a nobody. I had not I had never done anti-racism work. I was your run of the mill model minority, like middle aged Asian lady. And um, I was trying to primary out a white woman by the name of Diana DeGette, who is a Democrat and had been in Congress at that point, like 20 years now. It's what, 26 years and had never has not done anything, has been sitting there collecting a paycheck and not done anything. I announced my candidacy and literally about a week later, one of my volunteers called me and said, there's a rumor going around that you're anti-Semitic. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And she was like, I'm just telling you. So shortly thereafter, I get a call from APAC and I'm asked to go to this lunch. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And they said to me, if you don't come, all the other Democrats on the slate are coming. 
you will lose and you will never, ever win an office again. And we will let everybody know you're anti-Semitic. And they did. So they instantly, because, and Diana DeGette takes a lot of money from APAC, because I was even running against her, that was the first thing out of the gate. And when I said, I'm rejecting APAC's offer, they finished me off. And they were right. I mean, they were absolutely right. And so can you talk about how, because I think it was very, now it's like, I, I see it and we, we are watching how black and brown people, look at Mark Lamont Hill, like a very prominent person who got axed for saying river to the sea. Meanwhile, Benjamin Netanyahu just literally said river to the sea, you know? And so if you could talk a little bit about how allegations of anti-Semitism have been weaponized against folks, mostly everybody, right? But black and brown people experience it sort of twofold, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is an, a great example of what I was speaking about, about this relationship between Zionism and, um, and the U.S. and how the U.S. props this up. I mean, the propaganda is so intense. We have such an intense McCarthyite environment right now. And for so many years, you couldn't even, I mean, there were no Palestinian voices that were heard. You know, now Palestinian voices are coming through and they can't stop it. And it, I mean, it really feels to me like a certain desperation that the powers that be are around this because these voices are getting through. And it's an issue of democracy because the majority of people are for a ceasefire, but they're not listening. They're doing exactly what they want to do. Nevertheless, this McCarthy environment that you're speaking about, I mean, it affects people all over the country. People are getting fired. And honestly, what APAC is doing is mafiosa. They're mafia. And the control that they have in conjunction with the U.S. government and educational institutions, what happened at Harvard, um, what happened at Penn State, it's just it's outrageous. And it's a mark of desperation because, like I say, no matter what they try to do, people are watching children being murdered on television and they don't like it. And so voices are getting through. And at the same time, this McCarthy environment exists. And we need to fight that with everything that we have. It's terrible what happened to you and it's happening to people around the country. Well, you know something very personally about the McCarthy era. You had told me about your dad. Can you tell us about that? It's fascinating. Well, I mean, there was a McCarthy period in um, in the United States in the 50s where thousands of people lost their jobs. Thousands of people's lives were destroyed because of the same kind of extremism that we're talking about right now. Folks are being doxxed. Um, one of our co-editors of the book, uh, Land with the People, Roz Pachetsky, was her, you know, picture was on a truck uh, saying the biggest anti-Semite in CUNY, the City University of New York. I mean, this is this is the level to which they're coming, that they're going, just relative to this issue. It's kind of unbelievable. So yeah, I went through that in the fifties, and now we're going through it again. It's uh, it's and your dad something. was in front of the House Un-American Committee, though, right? Yes, yes, he was. In fact, they were going to deport him back to Palestine, but there was no more Palestine. Oh my god! <laughs> Can't make that up. You cannot make that up. That's amazing. You gotta make it up. All right, Esther, tell us. I mean, you've been an activist, it sounds like, your whole life. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Like, sort of where it started and then bring us through to, to current day? I mean, when I was in, I'm a, I'm a CUNY child, you know, the working class Harvard, so they say, at City College and Brooklyn College. And in those years, uh, there was so much activism. And uh, we were fighting for open admissions, which we won for seven years which, if people don't know, was a free college education for anyone who wanted to go to college. 
And at that time, when I was at Brooklyn College, the enrollment went from 17,000 to 35,000. And we mm-hmm. integrated the school. The school was pretty much all white and all 95% Jewish. And, oh, wow. And yeah. And so we in, both integrated the school. The character of higher education completely changed after these struggles. And I was very involved in that. And that was one of the lessons also relative to Zionism, because at Brooklyn College, most of the time we were fighting the Zionists around open admissions. And in particular, the first, we established the first Puerto Rican studies department in the nation and one of the first black studies departments, well, Africana studies departments in CUNY. And so I was very involved in that struggle. And it was very interesting to see, again, the Jewish made the Jewish establishment moving the school to the right. Mm. So, and from there, I was involved in the, the anti-Vietnam War movement, anti-Iraq, another example of the people not favoring this, but the government doing what they wanted to do. <laughs> so, um, and of course, you know, the whole George Floyd movement. And that's very interesting too, because for me, it seems like the energy of the George Floyd movement is now here. And I think the politicians are quite shocked by that. It's interesting you say that because I think there's a lot of stuff happening right now in terms of like all the things kind of clicking in place, which is why a lot of white folks have thought we're going to go back to brunch after the new year. And that hasn't happened. And and I can tell you just sort of anecdotally, and I know you said how many more people are coming to Jewish Voice for Peace every week. Our organization here for the kids in like the past month, we have 25 new hubs, regional hubs. It's like happening. People are like, oh my God, this is actually not going away. Maybe I need to sit down and pay attention and Google, you know, what's going on instead of brushing it under the rug. I think George Floyd's assassination um, that we all saw, brutal torture and assassination that we all saw, that's one. And two, post 9-11. And I can say this for myself. So I was at coming into the World Trade Center on 9-11 because I was uh, at NYU Law School at that time. And I I had a clinic at the U.S. Attorney's Office right next door to the World Trade Center. And I was coming up. So it's one of the people running up Church Street that you see, you know, see in those images. And I left to my apartment as a model minority. And I came home 12 hours later, bloody shoeless as a terrorist. Like that's how fast, you know, it happened. And I remember just being so internally oppressed and, and wanting to continue my adjacency to whiteness People would literally joke about me and my boyfriend, now my husband, as being terrorists all the time. And we would laugh along, you know? And there were lots of folks who looked like me who were protesting in the streets against the wars that the U.S. had decided to take on. And I think what has happened is a bunch of folks who look like me from there are like, we're not doing this again. We did this with 9-11. So it's George Floyd and post 9-11. And I think what has happened is a ton of you amazing anti-Zionist Jewish people who have been organizing out of the gate. Now we're seeing all of us colonized people from around the world. So many of us have been colonized coming together. And this has become, in my mind, um, I was just in D.C. last week, the most cross-racial intersectional movement of, of our time, period. So it's the linking together and, and white supremacy depends on divide and conquer. And this is the opposite of that. We are actually now coming together in a way that I've never seen. We cannot be defeated. They can't win this. Well, I think it really is an interesting moment in history. And it's, it's hard to have this all because, you know, on the one hand, you see the unbelievable horror of what's happening in Gaza and the West Bank. Not, not uh-huh. forget what's happening uh-huh. in the West Bank with the settlers. And I have friends there and the situation is really horrific. 
uh, slow death instead of the fast death that's going on in Gaza. But along with the horror is all of this very heartening stuff that you're mentioning, people coming together in ways that they've never come together before. And it's very beautiful. And it's very, for me as a, as an elder, I'm now an elder, it's amazing to see the skills and the the way that young people are terrific organizers and organizing their communities in ways that I just haven't seen. And it, it just, it makes me feel hopeful that something good can come out of this horror. But both things are going on at once, both the horror and the stuff that you're talking about. So it's quite a moment. <laughs> So you organized back in the day with the Black Panthers, is that correct? I I wasn't a Black Panther, but I was very close. Yeah. Um, many people. Why have you always felt drawn? You mentioned Puerto Rican studies as well. What has made you feel drawn to the plight of Black folks and Puerto Rican folks and other communities of color? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the, the main danger in this country and in certain areas around the world has been white supremacy. That's the biggest threat to Jews as well. And always has been. So it wasn't just a matter of allyship for me. It was a matter of that this is what the world looks like. And we, if, if we're not going to be for everybody, no one's going to survive. So I think that the message of safety through solidarity is a very, very important message. Uh-huh. And what it means is that we can't be just for ourselves, whoever ourselves is. Being in good solidarity, real solidarity with people has always been really important to me. And I learned that from my parents, and I'm very grateful for that knowledge. And we have to keep organizing in that way. God bless your parents, Esther, seriously. (laughs) Yeah, I say it all the time. (laughs) It's amazing. Okay, so tell us, if you don't mind, um, because Jewish Voices for Peace, JVP, has become in, in many ways a household name for a lot of us. Can you tell oh, us no. about Yeah, can you tell <laughs> yeah. us about the inception and what you all are up to now and how we can all support and and plug in? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're growing by leaps and bounds and I have to say as somebody from New York, uh, I was recently talking to a lot of people around the country and the actions that we did in New York from Grand Central Station to, you know, what we did uh in Washington, but it really galvanized people around the country, people to say, wow, okay, I have permission now to be able to say, I don't like what's going on and I'm going to do something about it. So that's what's happening around the country is that people are joining and not just AVP. There are other Jewish organizations. There's If Not Now, there's JFRED, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. There's a lot of people and it's just building bit by bit more and more. People are coming around. And people are on different journeys around this. So there are some people who don't consider themselves anti-Zionist at this point. And we have to be careful about that because words can also have these triggers that make it impossible to have further conversations. But there are some people who are questioning. There are some people who are doubting what Israel is doing. Some people consider themselves Zionist. Wherever you are on that journey, you're welcome in JVP. We have our position. We went through a process where we explicitly came out as anti-Zionist and we explained why, which many of the reasons that we've been discussing on this show. Uh, but yes, we are very proud of that. And we're also proud of the whole movement. It isn't just about JVP. So we're organizing in a way that I consider very non-sectarian. And I'm really proud of that because somebody, as somebody who's been on the left my whole life, some of the sectarianism has been so negative and has really kept us back. So 
we right now are considering what's good for the movement. And that's a great way of, of thinking. It's not what's good for JVP, it's what's good for the movement. And right now, I think JVP is very good for the movement. <laughs> it's just, yeah, please, please contact us, look at our website, join us. We have new member meetings regularly. The last new member meeting we had in New York City had 400 people. My goodness. On the call. So it's a, it's a wonderful, burgeoning thing. And we take our direction and our leadership from Palestinian organizations and we're accountable to them. And we're also proud of that as well. So please join us. Esther, honestly, like we, I can't thank you enough. We can't thank you enough. Thank you. That's it. Thank you. And I hope to see you soon. We met by chance. I know. Uh, in New York City. At, uh, at a vigil for murdered Palestinian children um, in December, and I'm so grateful for that. So thanks for coming, Esther. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Esther Farmer is the director and writer of the theater project Wrestling with Zionism and editor of the book A Land with the People, Palestinians and Jews Confront Zionism. Go pick up your copy today. For more information on how you can get involved, please visit our website, hearnumber4thekids.com. There you can learn more about our mission, make a donation, buy some of our merch, follow our socials, and sign up for our newsletter. Abolition Liberation Solidarity is a Here for the Kids production. Our producer and editor is Keith Rosella. I'm Sarah Rao, co-founder of Here for the Kids and your host and executive producer. We will have new episodes every two weeks. Please join us again soon.